2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 9. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Before we pray, I wanted just to say a word. Happy Father's Day to all among us. Um, for those of you that are fathers that are, are standing now, I just want to affirm you in the name of Jesus for the work that you have done, for the things that you have done, for the work that you've put in to bless your families and your children. I want to affirm you for that. I also want to tell you you're forgiven for your mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> you, if you're anything like me, you've made them, and, and grace is available to us. And I also want to challenge you in the name of God to keep uh, listening to God as he invites you to follow him in, in those ways. And there are some among us that I'm sure struggle with memories of fathers who didn't reflect the image of our Father in heaven, or maybe whose Father is no longer with us. I count myself among those. I pray that you remember that any man can be a father, but it takes a special person to be a dad. I pray that your father is or was a man who dreamed you would be as good a person as he meant himself to be. I pray that he was neither an anchor to hold you back nor a sail to carry you on his back, but a breeze, a prevailing breeze over your life. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your presence in our life. Thank you, Lord, for your work in our lives. Thank you for this passage that we've read and the encouragement to move from apathy to caring to love, that our lives might be a reflection of what you have done for us and through us. Bless this word uh, to your name. Bless this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take a seat. I just realized my uh, bookmark is a little uh, salute to fathers given to me here about five or six years ago. So still have that. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Oscar Medina. I'm one of the elders around here. And in your honor, I wore my official Guayabera shirt, right? Usually I wear the more casual ones. This is the official long sleeve for pockets and so forth. I even have a little pen in here. That's some. <laughs> All official today, reflecting my, my Cuban heritage. We're uh, finishing up our series on money, 
that we started a few weeks ago. And, uh, and really, I, you know, as we, as we start this uh, digging into this passage, uh, just a reminder that money is, is really a measure of power in our culture today. By, by the money that you hold, it, uh, it really manages how much of the world you control and your power to choose based on the amount of money in your bank or in your wallet is the choice of whether you go to McDonald's today or you go to some other place that may, may cost more, whether you live in one section of town or the other. And so the question that it kind of brings up in our minds, is this good or bad? And I think one way to think about it is the same question could be asked about fire. Is it good or bad? And really the answer is, well, it depends whether the fire is in the fireplace or on the rug. If it's in the fireplace, then the fire can be used to warm our homes, to cook our meals, and it's a wonderful thing. But if the, if the fire ends up on the rug, well then, at best, it's going to destroy our rug. At worst, it'll burn down our whole home. And so money as well can be released constructively or it can be released destructively. And, and, and really, God designed money to be our dignity. You see, we all need a corner of the world to be responsible for. God declared us to be stewards in this world. We all need that responsibility over us. But because of sin, money has become not just kind of a symbol of our dignity, but it's become our definition. Many of us end up getting our personhood and how we see ourselves based on our money or our wealth. So how can we ensure that we handle this constructively instead of destructively. It really starts in our hearts, in our souls. There's three principles that I want to speak to today that I think we can knead into our lives. You know, the same way when you're making chocolate chip cookies, you don't just dump it in there because then you end up with one cookie that has all the, all the chips in it. Right? You got you to gotta mix it in. You got to knead it in so that it's well spread out. And so Three principles I want to share, but before I share the first one, I need to give a little explanation, all right, a little story. Back in the early 90s, uh, when I was starting with uh, computers and software and all that, uh, back then, I don't know, you, it may be beyond the, your, your time, but when you, if you had a computer, you had the monitors with these big old fat TV looking things, and you needed to have a screensaver. Who remembers screensavers, right? You need to have a screensaver because those monitors, if you left it on the whole time without changing anything, it would burn out the screen. So screensavers is just something to pop up and make, make different action. Well, I had one that was an interactive screensaver that was one of my favorites. And what the screensaver did is after a few minutes of inactivity, Barney the dinosaur would pop up. And then when you moved your mouth, a little bullseye would show up and you got to put it over, over Barney and blow him up. So that was one of my, so I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend if there's anybody, but I was not a big fan. So having said that, the first principle is caring is sharing. Caring means sharing. That comes right out of Barney, but it also comes out of scripture. 
See, our dignity over money starts by caring about the right things. The passage we read is really a fundraising letter. Yeah, even in the Bible, we get fundraising letters. We can't avoid them. It's generally understood that the context for this passage is Jerusalem was going through a famine. The crops had failed. The people of God were in distress. There was great poverty and great need. Back early in, in, uh, in Acts, when Peter had met with Paul and they talked about his calling to go among the Gentiles, they agreed that this is a God thing. And they agreed, yeah, you go and you do the work among the Gentiles. And Peter said, and, and those of us here will continue to do the work among the Jews. But then the verse has a little clause that says, but please, please, please don't forget the poor. And Paul never did. And so the questions are asked, why, why would Paul care to reach out to all the churches that he ministered to across the Gentile world to care about the poor people in Jerusalem? Well, yes, there was an incredible famine, incredible need, but it was on his heart that all people are God's people. And certainly, wanting to reach out to the people of God who the further they were from Jerusalem, the more Gentile those churches were. And it was important for them to remember their connection, their spiritual debt to the believers in Jerusalem. So the word was put out to collect offering. And, and the, the members, the believers in Macedonia, kind of on their own, gathered an incredibly generous offering. Now, just to remind you, some of the believers that you've read stories about that were in Macedonia... Lydia, the seller of, of purple, remember her? She was one of the first people that Paul met when he went to Macedonia. She was considered a wealthy merchant. She probably was pretty well-to-do. Uh, selling purple, purple was something that typically only very wealthy people bought. And so her being able to sell that means that she probably was quite profitable and did well. But also in Macedonia was the Philippian jailer. Remember, he came to Christ. He would have been someone more of a middle-class, a blue-collar worker. And so not, not incredibly wealthy, but not poor of the poor. But then also, there was a, the little slave girl who was possessed by demons that was set free. She was among the believers, too. As a matter of fact, most of the Macedonians were quite poor, quite destitute. Uh, the, the understanding of that time is that People throughout that area really struggled because most of them could not keep good jobs. Because to be part of the trades, you had to also participate in the celebration or offering of, of gifts to the idols. And if you didn't do that, well, then it was hard to keep a trade. Hard to do something that would elevate you to a more middle class and, and you were relegated to, to, to poverty for the most part. I mean, imagine if for your job, every time you checked in, you had to do a post uh, on Facebook when you logged in celebrating the political party that you most disagree with. So that's, that's kind of the situation that they were in. And so these are people that did not have the kinds of jobs that they wanted, that they were suited for, that they could easily support their families. They were struggling. And yet, responding to a call for the, a need among God's people, they gave with this extreme generosity in spite of their poverty. They were sacrificial in their giving. They gave beyond what they should have been able to do. You know, it's interesting that research today 
shows that um, people who are of lower economic status in the U.S. by percentage give much more than people of upper class. Now, dollar-wise, not so much, because a wealthy person can give an incredible amount of money and not, not impact his, his, uh, his style of living or even move the needle on the percentage of his giving. But people who are in need, people who are even poor, by percentage, research has shown, give much more. Now, why is that? Well, probably because they've experienced need themselves, because they've lived through it. And having lived through it, they care. They've moved beyond apathy and just seeing, yeah, it's kind of too bad about those people. I'm glad it's not me. Ho-hum. See, it's been rightly said that uh, the opposite of love is not hate, but apathy. It's not caring. The plight of others, their pain, their need, just not really moving the needle on my heart for what I should be doing. Now, Paul's writing to Corinth because, uh, you know, it's an interesting story with Corinth. We don't know all the things. We know what's written in the letter. But what we do know about Corinth is that Corinth was a city that was in a port. They were generally wealthy. So the believers in Corinth probably had, had some, some ability uh, to do things. And we also know in this passage that they had promised the year prior to raise an offering, and they hadn't done it yet. So they said, yeah, 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 we'll do it. They never did. They never got around to actually sending the money. We also know about Corinth is, uh, based on everything that Paul wrote about, they seemed very concerned about spiritual gifts. They seemed very concerned about what happened as part of worship, but not so concerned about how their lives were lived out. So Paul is calling them out. Paul is calling them out and saying, you need to move from your apathy. You need to move from this position where you're in, where you, where you talk and you argue about what spiritual gift is best, but not actually living out the grace that God has called you to. You need to stop living as intellectual Christians that argue about what you believe, but don't actually live out what God has called you to. There are many ways that we uh, unintentionally Gets stagnated by apathy in our lives. When it's in front of us, Martin Niemöller was a pastor in Germany in the 1930s. Um, Germany had been recovering from how it was devastated after World War I. There was great need. And so he sympathized with right-wing political movements that ended up bringing in Hitler in 1933. But after Hitler came into power, he became an outspoken critic. And because of that, he spent the last eight years uh, up to the end of World War II in jail, in prisons, and in concentration camps. Uh, you may not know his name, but he's best remembered by a quote of a, of a speech he gave post-war, really in many different places. You might, you might have heard this. He said, first they came for the socialists. And I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist, but I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. 
His words still resonate today. So many different ways. So many different groups that we can say how the plight and the need and the pain of others more vulnerable than we may be doesn't really move our hearts. But one day, we may be in the place of that need. So Paul is lifting up the example of the incredible generosity of Macedonian believers, and he's asking Corinth, do you even care? Is your love genuine? Is God moving in you? Can you go beyond showing that caring means sharing? And to the next principle, that love means trust. Loving means trusting. So Paul uh, refers to this uh, act of, to this generosity, he calls it an act of grace. Now, it's really key that we, we understand that he's making that distinction between the gifts of the Spirit that Corinth was all about and all interested in and, and all that they talked about, and he's talking about an act of grace. And he's talking about an act of grace because he understands that this is an unmerited thing that's happening that God is moving his spirit in a way to act beyond what are your means. This is an act of grace. And, and he's reminding the people of Corinth that ultimately God owns everything and each of us. And we are only trustees of what we've been given. Now, we might respond to that. Hold on, hold on, Oscar, hold on. Okay, yeah, God and all that, but I worked my butt off to get where I am. All right? But where did you get your brain? Where did you get your health? Where did you get your network, your connections? Where did you get your ability to deliver and to perform the way you have been able to or perhaps have not been able to? All that we have, all that we are stewards of has been given by God. And we've been entrusted with it. Now, loving to this degree requires a bit of trust. And so Paul tells them, this is not a command. It's not about legalism. It's not about doing what's required. God wants generosity from you. You should have so much joy in what God has done in your life that your giving is a response to that joy. You see, here's the tricky thing about, about uh, greed. There are some sins that are clear. You know, adultery. The definition is pretty clear of where the lines are, you know, adultery. Uh, lying, it's, it's pretty well defined where, what's a lie and what isn't. Uh, theft, when you talk about greed, it's a little slippery, you see, because there's no clear reference, there's no dollar amount. You, you can't say that you're greedy if you want to keep 10 bucks or 10,000, but where's the line? There's no clear reference. You see, because greed, greed is a matter of the heart. Some people generously tithe, and that's respectable. Jesus even honored that. But if you do so because you're complying with a rule, then it's really more like you have a deal with God. It's like, it's like asking God, how much do I have to give to be okay with you? You see, the Macedonians gave so much that they actually had to live on less. They actually had to change their style of living. It's one thing when you 
give generously and your life is basically unpacked. But it's another thing when you give to such a degree that you have to actually change the way you live. I mean, let me just put it down in, in, into real terms for you. Imagine that, uh, we'll just use round numbers. Imagine that you get $1,000 a month. And from that $1,000 a month, you have a budget of your expenses of $900. So that leaves you $100, which just happens to be 10%, that you can give generously to the church or wherever God is leading you to give. But now imagine that you are compelled by God for some reason to give an additional hundred. So now your budget of 900 has become 800. What's going to get cut? Are you going to cut Netflix and Hulu? Are you going to stop eating out? Are you going to ride your bike to work instead of driving a car and spending money on gas? Your life has now changed because of the extra giving that you've obeyed God and, and following. Now, you know, you might say, well, you know, Oscar, that's kind of not fair. You're asking a little bit much here. But let's be real. What if your income dropped from 1,000 to 900? Would you just say, well, God, there went your money? Kind of like the story of the guy, the farmer, who went out, his, one of his cows was about to give birth, and an extra calf was born. And they were just so delighted. He went to his wife and said, God has blessed us. An extra calf was born. This is just an incredible gift. And, and, and his wife started praising God and, and said, I, I feel like we need to somehow respond to God for his great gift. And they agreed that one of the calves would be given to God as just acknowledging his great gift for them. And so the next day he went out again to the farm and he came back saddened and told his wife, I have bad news, honey. What happened? God's calf died. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> and so, what would happen if your income dropped? Would you be willing to make the same change? Would you have to make the same changes? Would you find a way to make it work? Maybe work more, maybe find another job, or maybe cut those same things. And so, need and our situation can drive us to make drastic choices, but our are we willing to consider those choices and those changes to respond to God's call for just incredible generosity? Back in Exodus 16, um, the uh, people of Israel are wandering in the desert. And as much as they tried, they couldn't support themselves. I mean, they, they sent people out hunting and, and trying to gather they just couldn't support themselves. So God did a miracle. And it was called manna. And manna just means, what is it? <laughs> That's what it means. Because they didn't know what it was, but they, know, they knew that they could eat it. But there were some rules that they, that they had. They had to go out every day and gather manna. But they were told, only gather what you could eat from that day. Yeah. And they were told that if you gather more than you can eat from that day it's going to rot, and it's going to stink, and it's going to go bad. doesn't matter if you hide it. doesn't matter if you have a walking refrigerator, which I don't think they had back then, right? <laughs> it's going to go bad. And you know, it really applies to our lives today. If we store up too much, it ends up creating rot and stink in our lives. So the difficulty is, can we trust him for tomorrow? 
See, how do we do that? Well, here's what you begin to do. You get a vision for the harvest that your giving can produce. Get a vision for the harvest that your giving can produce. See, we talk about, well, if I sow, then I shall reap. And, you know, that may be fine, but that's also kind of dangerous because down that road leaves prosperity gospel. (laughs) Down that road, you know, if I sow giving and I give a lot to the church and God's going to give me a lot. But we need to remember something very simple and very true. When a farmer goes out to sow, he spreads seed. And when he goes out to harvest, he doesn't bring back seed. He brings back crops and fruit. You see, you don't get back the same thing that you, that you sow. And so when we apply that to our lives, you don't get the same thing back. You plant things. You plant things that don't last. You plant things plant things that fall apart, you plant cash or money or giving, things that won't last, and you get back a changed character, a life with peace, joyful living. You get back things that will outlast the sun. You get back a life filled with the Spirit of God, with the fruits of the Spirit. You see, the truth is you can take it with you if you gather up the things that will outlast the sun. So we talked about caring means sharing. We talked about loving means trusting. The last principle I want to share with you today is giving means receiving. So why do we celebrate Christmas with gift giving? Have you ever thought about that? It really is profoundly appropriate. Uh, You see, Jesus wasn't really born. He was given. You know, Isaiah 9, 6 says, Unto us a child is born, a son is given. John 3, 16 says, God gave his only begotten son. See, Jesus is the only human who was older than his parents. Because he existed before he was born. And and, and verse 9 of this passage says, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Now, a lot of people think about this metaphorically. You know, that poor, like in spirit, or something like that. But it's very important to remember that, that it's quite real, the poverty that he experienced. I mean, we sentimentalize the Christmas story so much that I think maybe it becomes a little vague and opaque to us. We have beautiful movies, and we have inspirational hymns, and carols, and songs, and, and we have beautiful pageants with cute children, and all their nice lovely outfits and costumes. We have artful displays that we put in front of our homes. But take a moment and imagine an unkept street in a third world country. Like right now I'm thinking of an area in the the favelas of Sao Paulo. Think of something like that in your mind. A small town, about 2,000 people. It's swelled in population because of the census. And so people don't have a place to stay. They're maybe making little tents. Maybe, maybe a little favela has popped up. It's a hilly town, plenty of limestone caves. So the streets are probably muddy, probably not much cobblestone. Small houses, maybe some have basements. Many of them are in front of a cave that they use to shelter their animals. In one of those caves, that's where 
Mary and Joseph set up their, their home for, uh, for a while until the baby was born. Probably donkeys and cows, some goats were kept there so they wouldn't be stolen. It's a cave, so there's no fresh air blowing through to keep out the odor. And it's a cave, so there's probably nests of vermin that have been living there for generations. Probably why they sleep, Joseph and Mary. There's some rice, mice that are crawling over them and some bugs. They put the baby where the animals ate, and so maybe they have to keep watch, make sure the animal didn't try to lick the baby while they were sleeping. We're talking about real poverty. We're talking about the creator of all, the sovereign, the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills that gave it all up, put it all aside to, to live in poverty. When uh, the baby was born and they went and presented him, they gave the, the smallest gift that was possible to give, two pigeons, that was reserved just for the poor people. Jesus himself said in Matthew 8, 20, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. He lived poverty. Talk about, about giving until it changes your lifestyle. God gave us his son. The son gave us his life. See, earlier I talked about getting a vision for the harvest, you know, how we sow seeds but uh, get back fruit. We also need a vision of the Savior himself. Down towards the end of the passage, actually uh, verse 9 uh, chapter 9, verse 15, uh, says, He, uh, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And then in Romans 32, wonderful passage. I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but just incredibly powerful passage. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, if you receive Jesus as a gift, eventually you will receive every other gift. He was the jewel of all heaven, and God gave him. So Paul is reminding the people, and he's saying, I'm not commanding you, because you know, you know in your heart of hearts that, that Jesus gave all so that you might become rich. You know what the gospel is calling you to. Paul is saying, you just don't love enough to be generous. So he puts it in real economic terms. He had everything, and he gave it all up. He became mortal. He became vulnerable. He became killable. He was even rejected by the Father so that you could have the only gift that lasts forever. He gave it all up, not because you're lovely, but to make you lovely. So, you know, you can maybe look at your own heart and say, well, I just don't have that calling. That's just not in my heart. But if you know the gospel, think about these things until you weep, until you rejoice, until your heart melts to become more like him. Another way to think about it is that uh, God appears to Abraham as a smoking furnace. God appeared to Moses as a blazing tree. God appeared to Job as a tornado. These are not cuddly images. 
God revealed himself, but he didn't give himself until he became a baby. Nothing more vulnerable. It's his way of saying, I'm giving myself away. Now you give yourself away. By doing that, you may not only find freedom from the darkness for others, but you will find a way to get unchained yourself from your own heart. We talked about how tomorrow is Juneteenth. It's only been a national holiday for two years, but it's been celebrated for over 150. Uh, you heard in the announcements a brief story of how back in 1863, Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And yet though it was signed, many did not see the fruit of their freedom in places where Confederates still controlled. And then uh, Lee signed the surrender in Virginia in 1865. And still there were places where freedom was not known. So the Union Army traveled south with a general order that was read across all people to ensure because Lincoln and the Union knew that that was the case. That though freedom had been proclaimed, and though the war was over, and though the Confederacy had surrendered, still there were pockets where slavery had not been abolished, where people were kept from knowing the real state of their lives. So uh, they went to Galveston because, first of all, Galveston was an island off the coast of Texas, just south of Houston, and so it was easy to keep news out of there. Went to Galveston because it was the largest slave auction house west of the Mississippi. They went to Galveston because word had arrived that the slaveholders in Galveston had agreed together not to make any announcement until after the harvest was done. So the Union Army arrived, and the general had General Order Number 3 read, first in the town square, and then in front of the courthouse. And then he went to Reedy Chapel AME Church. Now, one-third of the population of Galveston were African-American, were enslaved people. But it wasn't until he appeared in front of Reedy Church that they actually heard, and a celebration started. They heard the words, there are no slaves in Texas. Celebration broke out, and again the following year, and since then. You may not be aware of the spiritual chains in your life. You may have a blind eye to what has held you back from enjoying all the richness and all the meaning and all the joy that God has for you. I tell you today that in Jesus Christ you are free if you turn to him. In a moment we'll have some prayer. We'll invite the uh, prayer team, the prayer leaders to come forward as we, uh, as we turn to God. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you work in our life. Thank you for the freedom that we find in you, freedom to obey, freedom to follow, and freedom to generously give of ourselves, trusting you. 
Thank you that you move us from apathy into a life committed to love you and to love your people and to love your work. We pray in Jesus' name.